Hi, I'm Keegan Flegner. I'm 17 years old, and I live in Santa Monica, California. When I was in first grade, I was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. Since that time, sports have played a huge role in changing my life. So I want to show the world how all kinds of sports can help all kinds of people with all kinds of mental and emotional challenges. Welcome to Sports on the Spectrum. My guest today is Kurt Schwengel. I met Kurt when I decided to try out for the Santa Monica High School Beach Volleyball Team in 10th grade. Although I started in volleyball many years after I began basketball, the prospect of playing on the beautiful beaches of Santa Monica, where so many stars like Sinjin Smith, Misty May Trainer, and Eric Sato had started, was too appealing to pass up. Like me, Kurt also grew up and played sports in Santa Monica, pitching at an all-league level for Santa Monica High School and then UCLA's baseball teams. Kurt has been a kindergarten teacher for 25 years, teaching thousands of young students, including several mainstream students with autism and Down syndrome. He created an original educational curriculum called Rock and Roll Kindergarten, introducing it to over 20,000 teachers across the country. Kurt's background is also interesting to me because he realized he had ADHD while in college. Please join me in welcoming Kurt Schwengel to Sports on the Spectrum. So, Kurt... To get started, and this is something if, for my longtime viewers, they know I love to do this, um, is I always like to start an interview by talking about you from the beginning. And basically what I mean by that is I want to get first get to have our audience get to know you from, you know, your days as a kid and all, how you first got into all this stuff. So first question, what were your very first memories of sports, you know, and it can be anything related to them, you know, like watching them on TV, going to a game, playing it, whatever. Okay, well, you know, like you, I grew up in Santa Monica, a very, very, um, a sports haven, you know, where from kindergarten on, yep. all your friends are constantly playing sports. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it was, I had an identical twin brother. And, okay. and you know where we grew up on the beach down there. So we were constantly playing out on the beach and stuff. Um, yep. But we didn't start organized sports until we were nine. Okay. Now, that may sound young to some people, right? But you know better than anybody. Yeah. You start at five in Santa right. Monica. Basically, yep. in kindergarten, your parents plop you on a soccer team or a t-ball team. Yep. My dad, who was a, um, a an incredible athlete, he played uh, football and ran track at the mm -hmm. University of Iowa. So big time jock. Yep. Um, he didn't really believe in youth sports, specifically mm -hmm. t-ball. Okay. Oh. He thought T-ball was for babies. Okay. okay. And refused to put us into baseball until we could make what was called the major leagues. Okay. okay. So here we all, my, my brother and I were going to elementary school and we're seeing all our friends, mm -hmm. you know, for three or four years playing mm -hmm. in youth sports leagues. And we knew this because they were wearing their uniforms to school and talking right. about what teams they're on. I'm on the Red Sox. I'm on this. And we didn't really start anything until we were nine. Um, right. So we felt like we got this incredibly late start. And, you know, who mm -hmm. knows if my dad was on to something, you know, I put my kids in T-ball. I didn't think it was for babies. Yeah. You know, it's developmental, right. you know, but my dad being a, a macho football player from Iowa, I guess just thought, I'm not going to stick my kids in this baby version of baseball. Right. You know, I want... Um, I want my kids, you know, to jump in, you know, and, and we really struggled at first, you know, we were not these gifted athletes, you know, we, we ended up being 
pretty good athletes, but, um, right. But for the most part, it was more about participation and being on a team. We were so happy to be on a team and it just, you know, Memorial park felt like Dodger stadium to us when we first walked into our little league games, you get all the butterflies and you get to play at night, which was always exciting. Um, love night. Yeah. Isn't it great. And, um, so those are my earliest memories. And then at the Santa Monica boys club, and uh, I'm not trying to be a uh, chauvinist there. When, when we were growing up, it was called the boys club. So it's hard for right. me to call it the boys and girls club. Right. Boys club, just, you know, right. me and your dad's yeah. age, you, we just right. say boys club. Um, we played basketball and flag football there mm-hmm. you know, from ages nine to 13 or 14, basically right. nine until high school. Yep. Um, and just absolutely loved every minute of it, you mm-hmm. know, and each sport, you know, t- taught you different lessons. Um, for whatever reason, I was real. I was quarterback on the football team. I was a pitcher on the baseball team. But when you got me on a basketball court as a little kid, I was right. terrified to shoot because I didn't like missing. Right. You know, I couldn't understand the concept of, you know, making one out of four shots was good. Right. You know, I thought like, oh my gosh, I just missed that shot. I, I can't shoot again for the rest of the game. Right. <laughs> you know, and for some reason, no coach ever took me aside and said, hey, you don't have to make every shot. Right. And I was just so terrified of missing in front right. of everybody. And it was weird because, you know, in, in baseball, I didn't mind striking out. In, right. in football, I didn't mind throwing an incomplete pass. But when I got in into, uh, they called it bitty basketball, I just, I couldn't, ta- I couldn't pull the trigger and take a shot. It was just, right. it was, it was haunting. Right. No, I mean, you know, as a ba- longtime basketball player who still loves the game, I, you know, it's like as good as I've become and as used to have, as I become to missing shots, you know, I never not get, get scared, but like, I'm always nervous of missing a shot, mm-hmm. especially if it's a good shot too. Like, you know, it's like, there's nothing I hate more than getting a wide open shot, you know, exactly where I want it. And I shoot the shot in MS, you know, I hate those things. So it's like, you know, while at the same time I've grown used to it, I totally get why that could be um, a feeling you could experience that could, you know, take you over to the point where you just don't shoot, you know? Yeah. Isn't it amazing to watch the pros who can right. start out 0 for 12. Right. And they just keep shooting. Right. <laughs> you know, they just, they don't let off. Like, you know, Kobe's bad nights. Right. He would just shoot and he, I think they have a term for it. I think they say that they shoot their way out of it. Right. If they're in a slump, they shoot their way out of it, you know, yep. um, it, which is unlike baseball. Um, you can't hit your way out of it because you can't force an at bat right, right after you strike out. You got to wait nine more players. You got to right. wait two or three innings to get a, another at bat. But these basketball players just shoot their way out of it. Yep. Out of their slumps. Well, you know, it's like they say, it's like, if you keep missing, keep shooting. Like I've, I've known like funny, I'll give a funny side story to, to, to our audience that I happen to know from the pros. There was a time where for those of you don't, who don't know, and maybe you don't know, Kurt, there's a guy named Danny Green who played for the longest time with the Spurs under the great coach, Greg Popovich. And there was one game, I think it was in the finals. I think they were playing Miami where Green was shooting at first, but he kept missing and later, and because of that, later in the game, he suddenly refused to shoot. And the other thing I'll note too about Danny Green is he prides himself on being a shooter. So it's like yeah. his greatest strength was taken away from him right there just because he simply couldn't make shots. And, right. you know, while he, he knew that was his greatest strength, at the same time, he became so scared by the prospect of missing another shot. He simply refused to shoot again. And eventually it got to the point where 
Pop, I think, pulled him aside and said, dude, if you don't shoot the basketball the next time you get it, I'm going to put you on the bench. <laughs> you know, because it's like, yes, he was missing shots, but at the same time, you know, you it's like, to win. right. Yeah, no. And and that was the only way he could contribute. And to Pop, it was like, yeah. hey, if this guy isn't, you know, at least trying to help us, you know, why should I keep him out there? You know? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's, I think it's Michael Jordan who said, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yes. That <laughs> is, is that so a true. Jordan quote? I, I'm not sure if it's a Jordan quote or not, but I know it's a quote of some. Yeah. Kind. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's true. You know, I it's mean, very true. Yeah. Look at Steph Curry, you know, right. Steph Curry, if he misses five in a row, he just backs up further yep. <laughs> and shoots from further away. It doesn't matter <laughs> to him. No, it doesn't. And, and the other, and that's why he also always shoots those long half court shots. You know, he's not afraid of missing. Yeah. And while granted, he makes way more than the average person does at the same time, he knows that every time he shoots it, he is taking a huge risk and potentially missing that shot. And of course, if he does miss, most people will consider that a terrible shot. That's right. That's right. It's like you do have to have that bravery in you if you have the guts to shoot those. So, yeah, well, I'm disappointed you didn't. Obviously, nobody's (laughs) perfect. But um, anyway, continuing on and, and I guess staying with the pros for a second, what I'd like to ask, um, you know, again, staying with you at a young age. Growing up, what exactly, what teams and maybe even specific players did you idolize in any sport at home? Why was that the case? Uh, I grew up a massive Dodger fan. Oh. Just an unbelievable, uh, you know, I bleed Dodger blue. Right. And let me tell you what was interesting about the Dodgers back then was um, they had an infield of four guys that Mm. stayed together for 11 years. Wow. 11 years they that played is, together right during ridiculous. my youth, you know, yeah. right during from the time I was probably seven or eight uh, to the time I was in high school, this infield stayed together. That's and, you know, crazy. nowadays, if you follow baseball, I think it's a miracle if these guys stay together for two or three years. Right. You know, like just rosters change so much nowadays. Right. So um, so I grew up with these Dodger lineups that mm-hmm. were just unbelievable, you know, like they, they were just so consistent and right. successful and you know it wasn't the case but it seemed like growing up every year it was the Dodgers versus the Yankees in the World Series right you know and my youth also seemed like every year was the Lakers versus the Boston Celtics right so I grew up with these kind of dynasties mm-hmm. that I rooted for and against yeah. um but uh but yeah it was always it was Rams for football because they were back right. they were in, in LA. LA back then um and it was Dodgers for baseball um, me and most of my friends, uh, rooted for the, uh, the Lakers, but for some reason I was so fascinated with Larry Bird. Mm. Um, I became a Celtics fan for junior high school just because of Larry Bird. And once you're he not got alone, up, you're not alone. You know, once he retired, it was done. You know, yep. I, I went back to the Lakers, but, um, there you go. but, uh, yeah, it was, it was all the LA teams, you know, and it seemed like, mm-hmm. again, it seemed like we had a dynasty back then. Right. And then, of course, I raised my sons as Dodgers and Lakers fans right. and then had this massive drought, you know, right. just just this year, of course. Well, you know, the not Lakers really for won. the Lakers, but definitely for the Dodgers. Yeah, but definitely for the Dodgers. You know, we all rooted for the Dodgers and to see them break the 30-year drought yeah. this year was pretty yeah. special. But, you know, all, you know, I had friends from Boston and right. all the Boston teams were winning. And I had friends, you know, who were Giants fans and they win three out of six World Series. And, right. you know, my poor sons had to, you know, watch all these other teams yeah. win. I didn't you see the Cubs win for the first time in 116 oh, years. Or unbelievable. Yep. Unbelievable. 
Yeah. So, so my, my uh, youth was mostly on a professional level. It was all about the Dodgers, you know, right. back then. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I have some ticket stubs of like pretty good seats that were $8. Oh. You know, that, those were back in the days before, you right. know, luxury boxes and all that stuff. Yep. Um, we're, we're professional, yeah. you know, I think the Lakers were always super expensive. Right. The Dodger tickets were nothing back then. Right. You know, you could get in for, you know, get good seats for 10 or $15. Right. So it was, yeah. it was incredible growing up uh, a Dodger fan yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny too, that you mentioned that. Cause I remember when I played with you uh, there were, I think it, it, we were, I was playing with you or the beach volleyball season coincided with uh, the playoffs and yeah, absolutely. baseball. Fall so sport. I, right. Yeah. So I remember, you know, there were times when, whenever they were playing and yeah. I was practicing outside your house, I'd come back in and you'd be watching them play. Oh, I was glued to the TV. <laughs> yes, you were. Yeah. And I guess I would actually follow up with that really quickly, you know, and kind of just add to the question. Uh, you know, you mentioned Larry Bird and I guess I would ask why him, but also just like maybe example, was there anybody specific on the Dodgers who stood out to you? Yeah. You know, um, my favorite player was a guy named Steve Yeager. Okay. And the only reason I liked Steve Yeager was because my first baseball mitt was a mm -hmm. Steve Yeager catcher's mitt. Ah. And I never even played catcher. It's just, you know, I, I don't know if it's just me, but who, you know, whoever signs your first glove, right. that's probably going to be your first favorite player. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I liked all the Dodgers, um, but uh, the one that really stood out for me was Fernando Valenzuela. Oh, okay. To grow up, I think I was let's see, Fernando Mania, I believe was 1980. Yeah. Now, have you heard of Fernando Valenzuela? Yes, I have. Okay. Do you understand that he was rookie of the year, Cy Young, mm -hmm. and the World Series MVP, or, or I'm sorry, World Series champion all in his first year? Okay. I remember walking to school, and this is way before the internet, Right. internet keegan way right, before right. and right. i remember walking past the um, newspaper stands right right and dodger games always ended later than you know i i went to bed but right. i would walk past these newspaper stands and i remember the headlines fernando valenzuela four and oh fernando right. valenzuela nine and oh fernando yeah. valenzuela ten and oh he yeah. took over this entire city right i mean fernando if you've never seen a documentary on fernando mania you should watch it Yep. Because this guy who, first of all, threw like nobody had ever seen before. He had its really funky wind up and he threw a split, a, right. uh, uh, I think not a split finger. Um, was it a slider? I forget what his out pitch was. Right. But he threw like nobody else you'd ever seen. Right. And then there was this whole thing about supposedly being 20 years old. He looked 30. Okay? <laughs> Nobody will ever know how old he actually was. Right. But that was another layer to it. Right. And the fact that this Hispanic guy, I don't remember him speaking much English at all. I mean, he hypnotized this city. And uh -huh. it wasn't a racial thing. You know, it wasn't. Right. It, everybody loved Fernando Valenzuela. Right. You know, so to see him, to see a player that even other fans in other cities were following mm -hmm. he was an absolute phenomenon and it came at the perfect time when i was 10 years old right after right. i started playing baseball right so fernando fernando mania to me probably is is really what made me fall in love with baseball and want to become a pitcher yeah um it was it was quite a scene in los angeles yeah, yeah. it's funny you mentioned um uh 
uh, you know, going to bed before games were over, but then waking up the next morning, walking to school and seeing the newspapers with the headlines. Because for me, while I did grow up only uh, with very little time before the internet, you know, completely took over everybody's lives. I do remember for a brief period when I was really little, uh, because I'm, in case you don't know, I'm a diehard Clippers fan. I remember how I'd always like watching their games and um, obviously because I was so little, I had to go to bed before they were over. But I always remember the first thing I would do when I got up every morning was I would ask my mom for the morning newspaper so I could go look at the score from the previous night's game. That's great. Uh, That's great. Yeah. So, so you can, uh, you can uh, uh, empathize with my sons. You're a long suffering Clipper fan. Yes. And while they haven't won a championship, you've seen them grow into a contender you know, yes. an exciting team to watch. Again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another scenario where uh, it's, I happened to grow up in a time where they finally started to become good. Yeah. Now, so do you remember the Clippers being a joke? Uh, honestly, no. Or I mean, they I do pretty good by the time. I mean, you... like I'm, I might remember one or two seasons before they started consistently making the playoffs, but only one or two. I think Elton Brand turned it all around, right? That, yeah, no. Team... Although what's, Although what's weird is I don't even remember Elton Brand being on the Clippers. So. Oh, okay. So maybe, yeah, you, you probably, cause I guess, yeah, probably I mean, before honestly, you started following them, they were a joke. I mean, right. it's hard to describe. I can't think of another team. Right. That was that bad for that long. Like, you know, how in football, I guess you have the Cleveland Browns who probably. are actually good now. Right. But I guess that the closest thing would be the Cleveland Browns where you just, when somebody's traded to that team, you just go, oh, we'll never hear from him again. Right. You know, but then Elton Brand came along and I think turned them into a play, you know, not not a contender, but, you know, right. got them into the playoffs a couple of times. Yeah. Baron Davis was an exciting right. clipper for a while. Yep. Um, I think I, I think I first started remembering watching them, ironically, when Blake Griffin came around. Yeah. Well, that's Lob City. Right. I mean, by then that was, right. that, you know, that was almost like, uh, like Fernando Mania. I right. mean, you had Lakers fans all of a sudden watching Clippers games because right. it was so exciting. Right. With Chris Paul and, and Blake Griffin. You know, yeah. I mean, that Lob City stuff was certainly yeah. an yeah. absolute pleasure to yeah. watch, even if you weren't a fan. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I guess um, kind of uh, going a little further off of that, you know, obviously you mentioned you grew up in Santa Monica like me. And I would, and what I'm asking is when you were, you know, at that age, you know, a child, a young adult, whatever. What do you think were some of your proudest moments? Like I, I mentioned first moments, but what were moments you were more proud of? Let's see. If you're talking about youth sports, you know, I hit a grand slam in an all-star game that oh, I can good. still remember the pitch coming. I mean, like, <laughs> of course you can. Yeah. Like there aren't too many times where I could actually remember everything about a play, but mm-hmm. uh, I remember hitting a grand slam yeah. in, uh, in an all-star game. And I remember and, just yeah. every detail. I, I can relate to you. Moment. I can yeah. relate to you. I remember hitting a game-winning free throw, you know? Yeah. I see. Uh, I don't think there's anything like a walk-off, you know, oh, like nothing, you know, like I, I never, you know, because I told you I wasn't very good at basketball because of my uh, right. terrified, I was too terrified to shoot, but I would imagine hitting a game-winning shot <laughs> must be, I don't know how you could ever forget it. Oh no, you, know, you can't. Like, That's it. It's true. It's the simple truth. You can't. It's just, you know, so, so I would say, I, I'd say I had a, um, a grand slam when I was little. Um, right. There were a couple of football plays, you know, some perfect passes I remember throwing. Right. And then when I got into high school, in one game, I threw a no hitter and hit a home run. 
There you go. Well, of course, I, nice. I remember all that and stuff like that. And some of my better pitching performances in high school. Mm-hmm. But um, for the most part, um, you know, the, the memories of the plays don't, don't stay. It's the teammates that right. you remember. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, oh, like that was a crazy team. And I remember this kid and stuff like that. And, oh. you know, that was a really good team. Or, you know, sometimes you say, oh, my gosh, we are. I was on the worst team you've ever seen. You know, those, those memories stick out. Yeah, no. But, you know, you end up forgetting most of the plays. Right. You know, like imagine, you know, these NBA guys. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry's probably hit too many game winners to remember. Right. You know, like I- I'd be curious to know if he remembers all his walk-offs. Yeah, I know. You know? Well, it's weird actually, because I feel like I remember hearing a story about how he remembers actually a lot of the plays he's committed in his NBA career. So no kidding. I mean, obviously, I, I'm only speaking from what little knowledge I know, but, you know, go look it up online, I'm sure. Well, listen, Keegan, when you have him on your podcast, you can quiz him. You know, yes. you could say, no. tell me what happened this date, this date. You could see if he remembers Absolutely. the game-winning shot in Denver. Absolutely. I will definitely <laughs> challenge him. I'll challenge him to remember all the times he lost the ball. Yes, in the final exactly. Because yes. I actually know it, too, oh, out of randomness. Interesting too. <laughs> so, oh, that's funny. Um, oh, that's great though. Um, and I guess, um, you know, kind of closing this phase of, uh, questions, um, obviously it sounds like sports were very important to you, especially when you were young. And why was that the case that they were so important to you at such a young age? Uh, probably because of my jock father, you know, (laughs) I probably felt like this is what we bonded over. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my father never really, asked me what I learned in school. You know, he was very concerned about my grades. Right. But he never sat down and said, what'd you learn today? Or what are you learning about? Or anything like that. Right. But, um, but you know, the, the sports were such a big deal to him that they be- became a big deal to mm-hmm. my brother and myself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and plus, you know, and this is what I tell a lot of parents, you know, I'm a kindergarten teacher. I tell the parents in their conferences, right. is, you know, your son's happiness is probably going to be dictated by his athletic ability in high school. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sad, you know, right. I, look, it, your kid could be, you know, a straight A student, but that's not going to get him high fives in the hallway. Right. You know, but if he's the quarterback of the football team, okay. Right. You know, and you know, in elementary school, it's all about handball, right. You know, how good you are in the handball line and, you know, I, all that stuff. I remember those days. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, so I encourage the parents to really, you know, focus on their kids' athleticism um, as well as their academics, just because it leads to the kids' happiness. And that's the way yeah. I was. You know, I was a very confident, I wouldn't say cocky, but I was a confident kid because I was an all-around athlete, you know. Right. And yeah. that was back in the days before, in my opinion, before club sports ruined youth sports. Right. Nowadays, you've got so many, especially in Santa Monica, such a baseball-crazy town. So many kids who play baseball year round. Right. When I was growing up, you played um, football in the fall, you played basketball in the winter and you played baseball in the spring. Right. You know, or I think soccer was a winter sport. Um, It was, it was in there. Yeah, it was in there somewhere. So a lot of kids did that too, but you did all of them. You know, I mean, you didn't, there was absolutely no opportunity to play baseball year round. Nobody right. was playing, you know? Right. So, um, so my generation, you know, like I just think bred a lot more all around athletes as yeah. opposed to these club programs that will tell the parents, okay, but if your kid doesn't play year round, everybody's going to pass them by and they scare the parents into thinking that they have to focus right. on one sport at 10 years old. Right. And, you know, all these 
big college coaches, mm-hmm. they'll say they want all around athletes. They want, right. you know, they want the kids playing different sports. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I've told girls on the beach volleyball team, right. You know, that, Hey, if you really want to play D one college beach volleyball, you, you should pl- probably play year round. Right. <laughs> you know, like I feel like a hypocrite saying it, but right. it's the truth. Like, these some of these girls that maybe are not as athletic as they could be need right. to focus on it at some point you have to focus on a sport if you want to play at the next level right you know and um as much as i wish everybody could play year round you know uh right. multi sports at some point in high school usually you're gonna have to to really focus unless you're the next bo jackson mm-hmm. or something right um because you know I know these college coaches, they talk a big game about wanting multi-sport athletes. Right. It's not like they cut you any slack if you right. say, yeah, but I don't play baseball year round. You know, right. they're not going to say, oh, then I'll recruit you. you right. know? No, they're going to recruit the best players they can. Right. Um, and so, uh, so that's one thing that, you know, that's really changed since, since I was the kid was the, this club sports phenomenon where like when these baseball players get out of college, mm-hmm. most of, not most of them, a lot of them go back to their hometown and they start a club baseball program. Right. That, that job, that profession did not exist when I was a kid. Okay. Right. You know who coached me in little league, my dad or our plumber, you know, like these were not ex college guys who were making money at it was some guy's dad, right. you know, that coached all these teams. Yeah. But nowadays you've got all these clubs, coaches who are, you know, usually extremely good coaches because they played at a high level. Right. You know, but it's their profession. Right. You know, which makes it a completely different thing than a volunteer coach, you mm-hmm. know, just getting out there and having fun. There's right. just so much more pressure for the kids now, you know, even in these younger ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I can Did definitely... you go through club basketball. I actually, well, Yes and no. I played in a league for the longest time. And my audience knows this because they've watched my previous episodes. I played in a basketball league at the YMCA for the longest time. And that was year round. Which why? Uh, Santa Monica. Oh, Santa Monica. Why? Okay. Yeah. 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 And that was year round, but it wasn't a club team. It was a rec league. So, okay. you know, it's like, yes and no. I mean, I guess is my answer to your question. Yeah. You know, more yes, but you know, it's like, whatever. So. And that was mostly actually because not necessarily because I wanted to play another sport. That was the only sport I was interested in at the time. Yeah, right. So it wasn't even necessarily a case where I was forced into it. But um, anyway, um, I guess I'll turn to the present more than instead of the past. And it seems like, in, at, at least based on what I know of, of you, you're still incredibly active. You know, you, you coach volleyball and play it very well still too. And you also play other sports. Apparently, based on what I'm reading off here, it says you play golf and pickleball. And let me ask quickly, what even is pickleball? Because I don't <laughs> really don't of... know what pickleball is. I mean, I do, but I don't think our audience does. Okay. Pickleball is paddle tennis. Okay. Uh, somebody was playing paddle tennis someday and I think they forgot the tennis balls and had a wiffle ball in their bag. <laughs> and they said, let's play with this wiffle ball and change a couple rules and pickleball was born. There you so go. pickleball is paddle tennis and um what you'll notice if you ever go to a pickleball court is the, I would say the average age is about 70 years old. <laughs> like this is a sport for ex tennis players. Right. Okay. Like it's up and coming. It's becoming younger. Right. But more often than not, what you're, what you're seeing on the pickleball court is 
people who can no longer cover a whole tennis court by themselves, right? Um, they they uh, transition to pickleball, and it's yep. just it's fast, it's fun, it's uh, it's like yeah. ping pong, but you're standing on the table, you know, yes. like. Um, so I play that. I play golf all the time. Yeah, like I, like yeah. you said, beach volleyball. Yeah. I, I'm pretty active. All right. all right. Well, let me get back to the question I was asking, <laughs> which was basically how did you get involved with these especially pickleball i mean come on man yeah uh well we have a place out in the desert so um uh when you when you when you're out in the desert with all these retired people pickleball comes naturally it's hard to not play pickleball right when you're out there um i took up golf i don't know i think uh maybe 15 or 20 years ago which you know like you remember when i said nine was late for right. starting uh for starting uh baseball I didn't start playing golf until I was in my thirties, which, you know, which allows me to say, Oh, I started late in life, you know, 20 years later, I'm kind of still a beginner because most 50 year olds who were golfing have been golfing since they were 10, you know, or something like that. Um, And then, uh, you know, just getting out there and playing as much beach volleyball as I can, you know, I try to do something active every day. Right. Uh, Being a teacher, getting off, off work early, Right. Has, has allowed me the, the possibility to do that and, and try to stay active. And you, you Keegan, I'm warning you, the, the hard part about being an athlete later in life right. is finding other people to play with mm, because yeah. most people work nine to five. Right. <laughs> and it's very hard to find somebody to play golf or pickleball or volleyball with at right. two in the afternoon. Right. And also one that won't beat you because they're so much yes. younger than you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, you got to consider that. I guess I would also just add on quickly. What about these like sports appealed to you? Um, well, let's see. Cause you mentioned it's like, it's hard to find players too. So yeah, it's like, what you kept know, you in it? Beach volleyball. I grew up playing beach volleyball cause I grew up on the beach in Santa Monica. Right. Um, I've just always loved the two on two aspect of it. Where right. It's a team sport, mm-hmm. but unlike baseball and basketball, you touch the ball every rally. Yeah. You know, like, um, I, like I said, I was a, a pitcher at UCLA right. Right. and I used to look in the outfield and mm. just look at these guys standing around doing nothing going, how can you just stand there? You know, like, yeah. how can you just stand there right. and maybe get the ball hit to you two, maybe three times a game? Right. I just didn't understand, you know, and you yeah. get three at bats a game. It just, I never understood how they had the attention span to do that. And I'll just uh, say quickly. I didn't understand it either. And I do endure it. Right. Like I, I, I tell these parents, I say, yeah, go ahead and put your kid in, in baseball, but I'm warning you, it's the most boring sport in the world, unless you're pitching and catching. Mm-hmm. I don't know how people do it. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, basketball, um, unlike the other sports that I play, man, I just can't stand ball hogs, man. I just Neither can't can take I. it. You Neither know, like I. I just, uh, uh, every, five years or so I get roped into playing uh, some kind of basketball game with a bunch of older guys or younger guys. I don't know. And there's always one guy on the team who's such a ball hog. He absolutely ruins it for me. And I never want to play again. Right. So, um, and then, uh, you know, golf, what I like about it is that you really play against yourself. Right. You know, you know, you can go out with three other friends like I did today and, you know, uh, depending on your handicap, uh, you know, you give each other strokes, you say, you're really good. So you're going to give me a stroke, a hole or something like that. Right. But ultimately you're really just playing against yourself in golf. And that, that really intrigued me when I started golfing was just watching yourself improve, 
you know, yeah, no, just I mean, through practice. Right. I mean, unlike other sports, you know, you're right. Golf is one of the very few sports where your biggest opponent is yourself. It's not Absolutely. other people. You know, it's like, Absolutely. you know, it's like at the end of the day, that is one of the very few sports where you have total control over your total own situation. Yeah, your own no situation. excuses. You can't blame, you know, a bad set or a bad pass or something like that on, on a teammate. Right. If you blow a shot, it's all on you, you right. know? And, and because I had the time to put a lot of effort into the sport, um, right. it's truly like if you, if you're practicing with any kind of purpose, you mm -hmm. will get better. That's yes. all there is to it. You yes. know, um, other sports, not so much, you know, like some people are just not coordinated enough to shoot a basketball, you know, Yes. And, and all the practice in the world isn't really going to help them that much. Right. But golf, because the ball's not moving when you right. hit it, you don't have to jump in the air when you're hitting it or anything like that. Yep. Um, you know, you can really not, you can, and that's one of the great things is you can never master it, but you're going to, you're always going to improve. Right. And no. then um, like we talked about pickleball, um, pickleball was just this great transition from being a, you know, a tennis player to, okay, I can't run that much in one day. Right. <laughs> you know, just, I need a sport that's just like this without the running. And right. boom, there's pickleball. There you go. It's, it's sometimes it is that simple. Yeah. But yeah, no, absolutely. So actually I'm going to kind of shift gears here pretty quickly. Actually, I'm actually going to do something I haven't done before, which is I'm going to get into the, the spectrum aspect of a little bit of it, this, this show a little more quickly than I usually do. And the first thing I'm going to ask is, um, uh, you, you shared, and I also just mentioned it uh, at the very beginning of the show that you uh, have ADHD, which is in case our audience doesn't know is short for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I'll also quickly read out a definition of it just to give us a little more um, context here. So uh, ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders of childhood it is usually first diagnosed in childhood and often lasts into adulthood. Children with ADHD may have trouble paying attention, controlling impulsive behaviors, may act without thinking about what the result will be, or may be overly active. Now, I'm not going to put words in your mouth or, or anything like that, but I'm assuming that kind of fits the bill in a way of what you've had to deal with, with when you, since you do have ADHD. But I, I guess I'd like to have you be the real um, uh, storyteller here about what that is like for you. And I'll, I guess I'll just ask, basically a simple question how does this affect you and yeah, what does it so feel like for you, you the, the way i describe my add um is when i'm sitting uh on the couch at night watching tv mm -hmm. okay um i'm watching tv right i have my laptop on my computer right, right. and sometimes I'm even listening to a podcast. <laughs> so that's what it's like to be HD ADD to me is the world, there's not enough stimulus, right? You know, like I just, I, I it, staring at one screen barely right. does it for me, right? You know, I need to be staring at two different screens and listening to something else. And then it's relaxing for me, right? You know, um, and it, it's weird, you know, my, my ADD, as far as I know, really didn't kick in until I was in college. Right. In high school, I was able to lock in on my teachers and get straight A's. That was never, it was never a problem for me to focus right. in class. And then right. I got to, to UCLA. Now, maybe it was because I was in a lecture hall with 300 kids, right. as opposed to a classroom with 30 kids and stuff like that. Right. But all of a sudden, I couldn't focus anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden... I'm doodling on paper. It's, you know, again, this is before cell phones and the internet. Right. Um, 
I'm doodling on papers. I'm reading books in class right. while the lecture's going on, doing all these things. And it just wasn't enough stimulus for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think also, you know, that's kind of why I gravitated towards the sports I've gravitated to. They, they kind of feed my ADD. You right. know, it, they, they keep my attention going. Like I said, you know, standing in the outfield, I couldn't right. do it. Right. You know, I, I just, there's no way you could have me stand in the outfield for four hours. Right. And right. just maybe two balls would get hit at me. Um, so um, that's the way I describe ADD. Right. It's just a, a, a need for an, a tremendous amount of stimuli coming right. at you from different directions yeah. and being able to handle it. Right. And it's actually really interesting that you say all of that because believe it or not, this is a wild coincidence. Before I got to talking with you, I was actually walk, uh, watching a recording of the play Hamilton, which cor- cor- uh, talks about the life of one of the founding fathers of the U.S., Alexander Hamilton. And what I find interesting here, you know, talking about what you've had to endure with ADHD and what he's had to endure in his life, is it honestly wouldn't shock me maybe if he himself had to deal with that. And of course, he just didn't know it because yeah. if. For those who have seen the play or know what it's about, one of the things I find most interesting about him, just going off topic a little bit here, is that he was always, he never wanted to stand on the sidelines. He always wanted to do something. Right. I mean, in the play, I'll read off the words of the play itself. He was never satisfied. Yeah. And remember what he was doing, what his uh, widow said after his death, she found out that he was always writing. You know, like he never stopped writing. Right. Every thought that came into his head, he wrote down. Right. And I think that's probably how ADD manifested itself, you know, before TV and the internet and cell phones and stuff like that. Probably right. a lot of these people ended up writing t- tremendous amounts of material. Right. Just because that was the only thing they could do to stay active. You yeah. know, it was just like they, they just could not stop themselves from doing what they thought was right. And I right. think that's also part of the reason why uh, he liked being you know, right all the time too. It's like, he couldn't, he couldn't stand the idea of all these other people having all these other different opinions that, that he didn't agree with, you know, he absolutely. just, he just had absolutely. to get his, get his word out when he could. And I think that's yeah. really and so my, so my ADD, um, what it did, I, I also think is, is that's the reason I'm a kindergarten teacher, right? It's the perfect job for somebody who's ADD, right? Because my attention span is as Just short as the kindergarten longer than the kids. It's like two minutes longer than the right. kids. So in my classroom, everything changes every 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids change from table to table every 15 minutes. Um, and, uh, you know, so what I did was I, I took this, um, what some people would consider, you know, a disability or whatever, um, and said, you know, what would be a good profession for this? You know, I tried designing video games right out of college. Right. It was the greatest job in the world. I was getting paid by Sony to design and produce video games. Yep. But it turns out I couldn't be in a cubicle from nine to five. No, nope. I, I, it was like a prison sentence, mm-hmm. you know, by, by one o'clock I was going, I have to be here for four more hours. <laughs> I right. couldn't take it. Right. You know, I just couldn't take it. So I um, became a teacher and found, you know, that the kindergarten one allowed me to be extremely creative. Right. Because, you know, every day is different than the next. You never know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. Right. Um, It just, you know, it really suited my personality and what I needed out of life, which which was constant movement, you know, constant stimuli. Yeah. Never going to walk into a kindergarten classroom and say, oh, this is so quiet. Right. You know, this is nonstop stimuli. Yeah, no. 
And I mean, honestly, you know, obviously, you know, I know I don't have ADHD or something like that, but I do still have autism. And I think, you know, I guess ADHD and autism share a similarity in the sense, or maybe this might be just me having some effects of it, uh, where it's like, I can't stand still for long periods of time. Like literally I, there are points where it's like, I'm sitting down in a class in school and I'll ask the teacher, it's like, I need to go outside in the hallway for a second and pace. And like when I'm, whenever I'm thinking too about an assignment or something like that, I usually like to do it while I'm pacing. Yeah. It's that simple. It's like, I can't focus unless I'm moving my body or something like that. Well, and, and so isn't that great that we both found beach volleyball, right? You know what I mean? Like you don't have to wonder when the next time you're going to touch the ball is right. <laughs> it's every rally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, There's no bench to sit on. You know, you're not worried about a coach taking you out and putting right. you back in you, yep. every single play you're touching the ball. Absolutely. You know I mean? so, and I think, and I think that's what made me fall in love with it so much too. It's like, I knew that I could be, a big part of it fairly easily just yeah. by being in the game, you know, yeah. it's like, and look at, you know, it's, it's, it's closest uh, cousin there, indoor volleyball, right. You could easily, especially you being a middle blocker, right. you could go several five, six rallies without ever touching the ball easily. Right. right? Yep. I mean, you're just putting your hands up at the net to block every time, hoping right. somebody hits it into your hands. Right. But as the middle blocker, you're not passing. Right. You're not setting. You're just right. praying that they get off a perfect pass that you could actually hit a ball <laughs> that the center yep. will set you. you know? yep. And it's like oftentimes too, the middle blocker gets set to the least, I'm sure. Oh, no doubt. Because it's it's like, it takes a perfect pass to set the middle. Right? Exactly. Otherwise you're setting the pins every single time. Right. No, I totally agree. I guess I would quickly ask a few quick follow-ups to kind of build off um, what you said earlier about dealing with ADHD. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll mention all three here and hope you can answer them in one cohesive answer, but no, not trying to stress you out here. Um, first of all, um, did it change for you getting older, you know, what compared to when you were first di- were diagnosed in college compared to now, basically, now that you're a kindergarten teacher and all, mm-hmm. um, and then do you feel it often? Like how often do you feel and give me kind of an estimate of what that does to you. And then also, are there any specific instances or circumstances or situations, whatever, where it can appear more or seem more evident is what I'm saying. Yeah, I would say um, it has not evolved at all since since uh, you know since I first noticed it in college. Right. I've been just as ADD as I have been for you know for the last thirty years. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's getting any better. I don't think it's getting any worse. Right. Um, I you know there's nothing uh, that calms me. You know there's mm-hmm. nothing that makes it go away. Right. Uh, you know, sleep patterns, you know, eating habits, none of it. It, it. It's it's always there. So to answer your second question. Right. It's always there. It mm-hmm. is. My mind is never at rest. Right. You know, like, um, uh, you know, in the middle of a beach volleyball game, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what I have to do that night to prep for the next day of kindergarten. Right. You know, like the, the, it's just uh, the, the mind never, ever, ever sits still. Mm-hmm. and um and then what was what was the third question uh the Have third question was like are there any specific situations or scenarios where can, where it can be more evident that you're dealing with it or not or where uh, it is to you i would say you know there there's instances where my wife points out my add okay and, and just says wow right right it must be rough you know right. like she sees me you know again like you know on the watching tv she'll, she'll come home Right. And I'm watching TV. 
uh, I'm on the laptop and I'm listening to something else at the right. same time. And I've probably got music playing in the background. Right. And, and she just like, goes, is, is this what it's like? Like, <laughs> is this, and I go, yes, this is what it's like being ADD. This right. is, this is calming to me because she mm-hmm. can't take two of those things. You know, right. like she, she barely likes having the TV on. Uh, and when she does, it's at a really low level, you know, right. volume wise. So to have four things coming at her, she, it's just not an option. Yeah. So, um, so that that's probably when it gets pointed out the most is when she goes, "Man, this is uh, this right. is really different for me." I would I would also say this: you probably have the biggest electrical bill in the city. Uh, it's, it's up there. <laughs> <laughs> if you're running so much, um, uh, I guess kind of standing staying in the casual aspect of things, of you know, does it come up more? I guess what I would ask here is. Um, how proactively or how open are you about this? I guess is what I would ask. And like, is it something like if somebody asks you about something yeah. like this, you know, do you ever try to hide it or deny it? Whatever. It's like, no. what's, what's um, your approach I, to, to sharing it with the world? I guess. Is yeah. My question. So I tell my parents at back to school night, you know, when they meet me, you know, okay. I, tell, I tell them the exact same thing I told you. I said, I'm, I'm highly ADD. Right. I have a tension span that's one minute longer than your five-year-olds. Right. So this is the perfect job for me. Right. Now, ADD and ADHD, in my opinion, have never had a negative stim, uh, negative connotation. No, and I, mean, I don't think they never, do either. There's never been a stigma attached to it. Now, when I was growing up, um, teachers would call kids hyper. Okay. Right. That wasn't a good thing. You know, that no. wasn't a compliment. That just meant your kid can't sit still. Okay. Right. And I think what that really was, was, you know, a 1970s way of saying, saying your kid is ADD, you know, yeah. or your kid is ADHD. They, they were just called hyper, you know, right. and you said, so can you meet a hyper kid? You know, you know why they were called hyper. Right. But even then it wasn't this negative. It, there was never this stigma because mm-hmm. um, parents, in my opinion, have never been afraid of having their kids diagnosed as ADD. Right. You know, I think parents, I, I, I do think that, not that there's a negative stigma to autism, but parents, it's not something parents want to hear, you right. know, like you're not hoping for an autism, you know, diagnosis right. when your kid goes to the doctor. Um, but, it, uh, but I don't think anybody ever um, negatively stigmatized ADD. So I'm perfectly happy to tell right. complete strangers, you know, you know, right. if I, if I playing with somebody playing golf with somebody and I, you know, sometimes I'll say, Hey, I'm ADD. And, I might have my earplugs in when I'm golfing or right. I might be on my phone in between shots. It's just what I do. Nobody cares. Yeah. You know, it's, there's, everybody's very forgiving right. when it comes to saying that, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm not telling them something that's in my opinion, super personal. I'm just saying, Hey, yeah, no. you know, if I, if I wander off in the middle of a conversation or something like that, you know, this is why, Yeah. you know, and one of the things I ask the parents is, you know, to keep their emails to me short, mm-hmm. you know, the shorter they are, the, the, more likely I am to read them. Right. And pay attention. You know, if, if they're going to write me a six page essay on, you know, what happened to their kid at school that day, it's going to be rough for me to get through. Right. You know? Yeah. No. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I, you know, I'm very, very open. Right. About being ADD. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, as for me, and I'm not trying to compare or dip, differentiate the two here, you know, for me having autism, I'm not as open about it. And it's not because I don't want to be, it's just because, again, to me, it's like, well, if people aren't asking, why should I tell them, you know? So right. it's like, and, and it's like, if they did ask me, of course, I'd be honest with them at all right. and open and not feel bad about it in any way. But, right. you know, to me, it's like, it's something that's like, 
if it doesn't have to come up, it doesn't need to come up, you know, right. it's like, so it's like, it's kind of like that, but I guess I'm um, trying to connect the two now at this point. Um, how did sports specifically help you deal with those kinds of challenges you mentioned and, you know, effects that ADHD has had on you and, or ADD, whatever you want to call it, you know, what did it do to help you both better understand it and address, you know, everything associated with that? Yeah, I'd say more than anything, it keeps me busy. Right. You know, the, the sports keep me busy. You know, um, like I said, you know, I just need a tremendous amount of stimulus right. in my life. Right. And the sports I play in the afternoons or nights, whenever I'm playing them, um, they give me lots and lots of stimulus. Not only do they give me stimulus then, right. but um, my golf rounds at night, the, mm -hmm. the last thing I think about before I fall asleep is every single shot I took in right. order. You know, right. that's how, it, you know, that's my version of counting mm -hmm. sheep. Yeah, is, no. And same right. with volleyball or, or pickleball. I can replay, right. uh, replay the matches in my head to help me fall asleep. Right. Because that's another thing about being ADD is when you're awake, you are awake. You know, right. you need to like, <laughs> you need something calming to fall asleep to, you know. Um, and, um, and that's what, you know, sports has done for me is it, it, it provides me an outlet, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then it, it also gives me something to practice. Right. When I'm not, you know, playing when I can't find any to play with, I could always practice golf by myself. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it gives me something to look forward to, you know, right. like, like I said, I need all this stimulus during the day. Uh, there's plenty of times during the day where I find myself um, predicting my golf shots or my volleyball match or something like that throughout right. the day. And I think, you know, one thing in, in especially pickleball and um, volleyball is it's a huge advantage to know where the ball is about to be hit. Right. Okay. So, right. You know, like I think I used to teach you don't cover a part of the court that right. they can't hit it to, you know, right. and it's all about predictability. Right. And I think that that's possibly where ADD helps me in sports mm -hmm. because my mind never, ever shuts off. Right. I, I'm always telling my volleyball players, you should learn something from every rally. Right. Okay? Learn where so-and-so just hit that ball and right. remember where his misses were. Right. And force him to hit the ball where he doesn't want to hit it. Right. You know? Yeah, no. Um, and I think a, a, a mind that's never at rest right. can think about these things better than a mind that is at rest. You know, right. I'm sure there no. are some very Zen players out there who are not constantly thinking, right. okay, he just hit two balls out down the line. I'm mm. going to force him to hit line every time, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I think, I think ADD, you know, if you find the right sport, um, right. it can really help you, you know? You, yeah. And to me, that's the key. Have you ever heard of Jack Dempsey? That name does ring a bell. So he was, he was a kid who was born with a club foot. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that pretty much immediately took him out of most sports. Right. You can't, you can't run and keep up with everybody with a club foot. Right. Um, so you know what he became? The Boxer? single greatest. No, no, that's another Dempsey. Okay. Um, uh, he became the greatest field goal kicker of all time. Oh. He kicked a 64 yard field goal. And this was back in the, I don't know, fifties or sixties. Okay. Right. When it he was ridiculous. A, he had a, a long field goal. I believe the record stood until a year or two ago when some guy right. in Miami that you never heard of kicked right. a 65 yarder. Okay. Right. But that's a good example of a guy who probably with the help of his dad right. said, okay, I have a club foot and mm -hmm. I love sports. What could right. I do with it? Right. right. 
and they found him the perfect outlet. You can right. kick a ball further than anybody else because right. of your club foot. Right. And so a lot of times when, you know, kids have certain issues or something like that, you know, I'll actually sit down with the parents in kindergarten and go, okay, mm-hmm. what aspects of your child um, could benefit them later in sports? You know, right. if they're tall, obviously volleyball or basketball. If mm-hmm. they're fast, probably soccer or, right. you know, another, you know, lacrosse or something where speed is king. Right. Um, but it's the same with, you know, different abilities. Yeah. You know, if your kid is ADD, I have some good sports for you. You know, right. I, I, can, I can recommend some sports that that their their ADD might actually feed into it. Or, you know, I mean, it's not going to be long before we see an autistic superstar. I, you know, like, and I, do, does do any names come to mind when you say autism in sports? Has there been I, one? I mean, no, but it wouldn't shock me if one does come along. At the you know, same eventually time. somebody's going to come along and exactly. be a poster boy. You know, right. there was a there was a famous. Um, running back a few years ago named Ricky Williams. Mm -hmm. And he had, um, I don't know the name of it, but he had some social anxiety disorder where he had to do his interviews after the game with his helmet on. Mm. He didn't like, I I don't think it was the eye contact. I'm not sure what it was. Right. But, um, but he was lambasted by the press for being a prima donna for not taking his helmet off during these interviews. And it turns out he had this social disorder. Right. And everybody just crushed him for it. You know, Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, I can't wait to see, um, yeah, you know, an autistic superstar, you right. know, who's, yeah. who's, who's going to really be the poster child for all the autistic kids yeah. out there and say, you can yeah. do this. Right. You know? No. And I mean, I, I can relate to, uh, what Ricky was thinking, you know, cause it's like, sometimes this isn't a common trend for me, you know, cause I've learned to deal with it better, but sometimes I'll like to wear sunglasses, you know, when yes. I'm out in a out, outside or whatever and talking yeah. to other people just because you know it then allows me to see them clearly but they don't have to see me per se yeah. you know yep. and meanwhile if you were to wear if you were to wear those same sunglasses inside people would think you were rude right you know? or a prima donna or a rock star right. you think you're right. a rock star or something you know right uh, but i think the world you know i mean i think society's changing right you know all i think all the attitudes on mental health are changing incredibly I think we've mm-hmm. made tremendous strides in the last few years when it comes to recognizing mental health issues. Right. No, I think so too. And I definitely think it'll only continue to get better. Yeah. So um, I think actually um, I'm going to try and give our audience a little more um, background into how we know each other personally, with, uh, thanks to me playing for your team. But before we do that, I'd like to give a, sh- a shout out uh, to one of our sponsors. Do you own a classic Mustang, Corvette, Camaro, or Chevelle from the 1960s or 70s? Does the clock in your dash keep accurate time? Do you want to get a new clock for your car, but you don't want to pay $200, $300, or even $500 for a new clock? Well, then go to impactautopartsstore.com for a brand new quartz clock that looks identical to the original and is powered by a single AA battery. All at prices less than half that of a restored clock or a reproduction. Go to the website, impactautopartsstore.com and keep on cruising. And so, you know, first I want to discuss basically what it was like for me playing on your team and playing on the beach. And um, I actually have a a picture here to show you to kind of bring back some memories to that for both of us. And, And also, you know, learning from your other experiences playing with other high school athletes too. So this I have right here is a picture of hey. our, <laughs> our entire beach volleyball team for the year that I played where 
you're on one side of the picture wearing your big uh uh what do you call those uh beach hat yeah beach hat basically <laughs> and then i'm on ironically the other side you know we're both on the edges there wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses you know and it's just like i think that's kind of a i think that kind of does a good job of kind of showing what exactly it was like for me being on a team, you know, that while, yes, we played in twos, it's like, we were all together. We all yeah. learned from each other and, you know, and you let us all there, you know, it's like, you were always the commander in chief. We all knew that. And at the same time, we all respected that from you. Yeah. Well, look to what I remember is I remember you being a very good teammate, right. You know, like the, the sport of beach volleyball, um, you know, unlike doubles tennis or anything like that, you're actually right. touching the ball three times on the same rally. You know, in doubles right. tennis, you're just whacking the ball over. You're not really, uh, you know, teamed up with your partner hitting the ball to each other. So you right. really have to be in sync. And I remember I always used to tell you guys, look, you, you need to be a good partner because you're either making your partner, partner better or you're right. making them worse. worse. You know, like if you're rolling your eyes or saying, why didn't you get that? Or why didn't you go for that? You're making your partner worse. You right know? now, some some partners need to be yelled at. You know? Right, some partners need to be stroked and coddled. You know, right. and you were always very good at realizing what your right. partner needed. Right, you know. Now, I will say, your partners didn't always know what you needed. Right, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, you weren't uh, your typical beach volleyball player who was boisterous and macho. Right, you know, you were more introverted. Right. And, you expected everybody else to try as hard as you were trying, you know, right. you were going all out. Like I remember sometimes I was worried that you were going to run into the pole. You know, you were running so hard after these balls. I thought this kid's going to go head first into the pole trying to get some of these balls. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't have been afraid if that happened, sport. you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's truly a team sport where, um, you know, you're either lifting up your partner or pushing them down, you know? Right. And, um, and, and you were always very good at lifting your partner up. You know? Yeah, no. Um, you were always supportive of your partner. Right. You rolling your eyes when they made a mistake or anything right. like that. Um, no. How did you feel out there? Did you feel like you were you comfortable? Know, you know, I mean, I definitely felt comfortable. And I think part of the reason why, and I, I appreciate the compliment, but at the same time, I can understand why you said that about me being a good demon. I think part of the reason for that was I was never afraid of like, you know, disappointing myself in a way simply because you know it's like i i kind of saw myself as always trying to be as good as my other partner so it's it's like at the same time you know i was never afraid cuz i i kind of always looked myself as the as the worst player even if maybe that wasn't always the case not, let me tell you something let me interrupt you there you were by far not the worst and what i thought made you an interesting player was because half the time you were playing with somebody better than you and right. half the time you were playing with somebody worse than you Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it's easy to be the worst on the team. Everybody's mm -hmm. better than you. The expectations are low. It's easy to be the best on the team. Okay. Right. What's hard is to be in the middle. Right. And, you know, because we were changing partners so often, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes you're playing with somebody better. Sometimes you're right. playing with somebody worse and you just got to make the adjustment. Right. No. And I think that kind of made me become such a good teammate because at the same time, I realized that, you know, it's like, okay, everybody's going to be different. But at the same time, I think, especially coming from the experience of being with guys worse, I was always looking to pull them up. And I guess maybe because I'm such a humble person in general, that never necessarily changed. Even when I was playing with a better player, yeah. I was always looking 
to not make them feel bad about themselves. Absolutely. And and at the at the same time too, it's like as a better player, it's like you don't want to feel disappointed in yourself. So right. when they got to play with guys like me, I'm sure they were like, wow, you know, it's like this kid. It's like he while he may not be as good as me at the same time, he at least takes responsibility for what he needs to take responsibility for. And even sometimes he'll always bring me up. So it's right. like, I think well, that was. And that's one of the ironic things about being a beach volleyball partner is if your partner isn't playing well, okay. Right. Being disappointed in him is right. usually going to make it worse. Right. <laughs> you know, like I never understood these volleyball players who get on their partners and yell at them and put all these pressure on them. I'm just looking at him going, man, you're just making it worse. Now, right. now your partner's nervous. Right. You may, you're actively making him worse. Right. And now you're even going to get more frustrated as opposed to just saying, hey, we got this next one. I know, right. you know, I know we're yeah. going to cite out this next one or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I won't lie and say I didn't, I did feel that sometimes, but yeah. unlike those other guys, I had the willingness to hide it from of them. Of course. And, just, and yes. just, because I didn't want to hurt their feelings because right. I, I know it's like, if, I, if somebody said that to me, you know, how would I feel? Right. So it's like, you know, I, I, I think I, that kind of helped in a sense. Absolutely. Know? And, you know, ironically talking about how great this was, I think probably one of the most interesting things, and I don't think even, you know, this too. Playing beach volleyball is way more of a coincidence than it seems because here's the thing. And here's some of the reasons why I came to it in the first place, which, you know, again, you, I don't think a lot of people even know. Um, and first I'll start by saying this, which is I, I played in my sophomore year and only my sophomore year. And I would have played more if I not left for another school. Well, but, and you realize you were going to come play for us this year. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. even though you weren't at Samohai, I was going to let you on the Samohai team. <laughs> <laughs> nobody needed to know. <laughs> right. Nope. And nobody does. But, you know, it's like I had only I only started playing my sophomore year. And what happened my freshman year was I was hoping to play both on the indoor basketball team and the indoor volleyball team. And I tried out for both of those. I didn't get it. And so I actually turned to both cross country and track and field just because unlike beach volleyball at the time, at least. I had some experience in both of those fields and thought, well, it's pretty easy to learn. The only question is how good can I get really? Right. So, you know, and playing um, in my freshman year for both of those teams, that was nice. You know, they were, it was a great experience and all, I'll treasure it for every day I live. But at the same time, I think the biggest issue with it, and you know, I don't blame anybody for this because this is just the nature of the sport. And it's, it's something you talked about. It's like, you got to find the right sport yeah. for, for you and not everybody has the same sport. And for me, I think what cross country and track and field lacked for me that didn't make it as good as I wanted it to be compared to beach volleyball, for example, was that because I had autism, I used sports as sort of a way to get my social interaction level up because as a person who has autism, that's something I struggle with. And in sports like volleyball and basketball and beach volleyball, that works really well. But yeah. in cross country and track field, not so much yeah. <laughs> because, you know, the teammate, while you are on a team and yeah. your points come together at the same time, you're not necessarily competing as a team, you know, because at the end of the day, you're the individual runner and you're not really working off of your teammates, you know, and not have a game plan or whatever. And again, this is not any offense to them or anything, because this is something they simply can't control. But, you know, it's like, I think that was kind of one of the, the challenges that one of the things that made me want to step away from it and try something else like beach right. volleyball. And then, you know, again, I also mentioned the fact that I wanted to play basketball and indoor volleyball didn't make those teams. That was frustrating, but I won't get into the specifics of that. 
Well, and, and don't forget one of the biggest advantages of beach volleyball is that you can play for the rest of your life. Exactly. Unlike and was, football and cross country. I know you can run, but you can't run in a cross country meet whenever right. you want, you know, like, right. um, but you know, football, basketball, baseball, mm-hmm. um, you know, once you graduate from high school, most people never play again. Right. You know, like it, that's it. That's your whole career. But if you take up sports like golf, tennis, beach volleyball, you can play right. until you're 80 or 90. And you don't need, you don't need to rent out a facility, just grab three friends and go, you know? Exactly. I mean, and for you, you were lucky too. Cause it's like, you, like you said, you lived down the beach. so You could just go out every day and just play. And, you know, it's like, I'm honestly legitimately jealous of that, but (laughs) it's like, at the same time, I, I am happy that you get that chance, but you know, and I, and I guess I'll just add quickly too. you know, the fact of the matter was when I found out that, you know, beach volleyball was an option for me too, it was really nice to have this idea in my head of coming to a place that I had no prior knowledge of, no real experience in, but, you know, at the same time, getting this whole new thing that seemed really interesting to me, you know, and I think that was kind of the biggest key uh, in choosing to come to it too. And actually I have some more pictures here too, to show you that kind of replicate, I think, or show how well that worked for me. So first one I have here was actually from my very first day, very first day I met you actually, and I'm not sure if you remember this, but this is me. Hey, look at that. <laughs> this was the very, yes, this was the very first day that I was with you, that I came to you. Cause I remember what happened was, you know, obviously you didn't know me. I didn't know you and you wanted to see how good I was. So what right. you did was you, you emailed me, you said, Hey, come out to this thing. We're going to have a little cool tournament with some other high school kids, you know, and I'll get to see how you play. And so I came out, by the way, I remember, uh, wearing that tank top and you were like, we got to get that off of you, man. <laughs> was that a basketball jersey? It w- well, it was from cross country. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, and I only wore it cause I was like, well, I don't know. Yeah. I wanted to show it. Going right. to the beach, right. <laughs> wear a tank top. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, but I remember it was like, you know, I came, you know, I, I met you for the first time and you, you put me out there with Ezra, <laughs> yeah, the kid, and yep, it just took off from there. Yeah, you know, but yeah, no, I think that was, I think that was very, um, and I think because of that, I think that's what made the experience itself become so valuable and interesting for me. And I also actually have another picture. This is obviously not the first day, but it's a little more deep. But this is actually a picture of me and oh, I remember that where I practice and you can see me clearly, but for those of us who are watching visually, you it's, if you look closely, you can see Kurt in the back wearing a red Jersey. Yeah. That's my Clippers Jersey. You right. Know that. <laughs> yeah. No Lamar yeah, Odom well, Jersey. That's, that's also one of the things I love about beach volleyball is that I can play against you guys. Right. You know, I'm not just screaming at you from the sidelines saying, do this, do that. I'm on the court with you guys right. saying, watch me play right. like me. <laughs> like, <laughs> and we always thought, and I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure I speak for the team here too. We always loved it when you came out to play, we were like, yeah. Oh, cool. We get to I play against it. coach. You know, I loved it. I loved and it you know, it's it. like you being the player that you were, even despite your age, it's like, it, you were yeah. still good. You were still yeah. competitive. And we always had a, had a blast, you know, getting yeah. to play with you, you know? So it was like, it was all in good fun, basically, yeah. is what I'll put it. So Yeah, and, you know, just so you know, I, you know, another great thing about it is that I'd go 100% against you guys. Yes, yes, you yeah, would. I'm not out there letting you win, that's for yeah. sure. No, 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 you weren't. I, I and at least a for model me. for how you should play. You know, right. like, this is how I expect you to play. Right, yeah. You guys jumped three times as high as I do. 
Right. You, you shouldn't be getting beat by me. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. And I mean, at least for me, you know, I didn't mind that at all. I was like, hey, dude, bring it. You know, yeah. if I get if you beat if you beat my butt, you know, it's like, hey, you beat my butt. You know, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's like, I'll take it. I did, and in some ways it made me feel better about myself. But I was like, OK, cool. You know, it's like I, now I know that the coach can see the, the real me, yes. even if it's, you know, Absolutely. losing me. So. Absolutely. Well, you know, and that's another thing I was trying to do was was kind of push your buttons and see which teams were going to break. Right. Who's going to get frustrated with each other and, right. you know, roll their eyes or something like that. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm constantly looking for uh, uh, ways to improve the team right. from the court. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll add a quick side fact, too. I, I remember how for basically majority of the season, because we have enough we had enough players for varsity majority of the year. I was on JV both because I was a sophomore and because, you know, we had the good players, but I do remember, I think it was actually the last get together we had against another school. You actually put me on varsity that. for one match. That's right. That's yeah. right. You got to, you got called up to varsity. Yeah. No, as a sophomore. That was a right. big deal. <laughs> no. And you know, it's like for me, cause it's like I said, I got cut from all these other teams and that crushed me, but it was like to get that moment where I get well, the, and if there was no you. letter, yeah, <laughs> it was like you, there was um, it was incredibly gratifying as a coach to see somebody improve so much in one season. Right. To, to see where you started and to where you ended in the season. That's yeah. why you coach. Right. Like, do you know what the number one thing you look for in a coach uh, coaches look for is coachability. Right. Is can I coach this kid? You know, yeah. look, I, I love having, you know, great God given, wonderful all American athletes. Right. on the team but what coaches are really out there for is to produce improvement mm -hmm. you know absolutely and to see a player like you that was so coachable that right. was just like yes sir no sir you know right. just i say if i say you know uh keegan go jump in the ocean <laughs> you'd be in the ocean in 30 seconds you wouldn't I say do. why what does this have to do with anything right coach said to do it i'm gonna go do it you know yeah. and that's what coaches look for is, yeah. is coachability you right yeah I will say, um, while that does work well on sports, in real life, I can be a little too naive sometimes. I've, <laughs> I've gotten tricked and I never like it, but you know, it's like, whatever. So, <laughs> you know. but yeah, no, I, I remember it's like that last day you called me up to varsity and I did all right. You know, it's yeah. like we lost, we lost, but it was like, hey, to me, it, you it didn't matter. Yeah, no, we held our ground in that, in that yes. one match. I remember that's what happened. <laughs> we held our ground and that to me was good enough. But um, I guess, um, Going uh, back now to specifically your coaching and going back to the spectrum aspect, once again, you know, I, I guess I would ask, aside from me, of course, because, you know, we all know I have autism. Have you ever coached athletes where at least you believe they had some type of mental or emotional condition, such as autism, ADHD, whatever, bipolarity, you get the idea. Um, and basically, you know, based on your interactions with them, what did you believe they were dealing with maybe? Like what right. stood out to you about them? And then what was it about those differences, I'll call them for now, that you know, also made them great players and great teammates and great people to coach, you know? Yeah, so um, as a classroom teacher, I've had plenty of kids with autism. Right. Um, I've had Down syndrome kids. Yep. I've had um, kids with physical disabilities, you know, the whole thing. Right. Um, so before I was the, um, volleyball, the beach volleyball coach at Santa Monica high school, I was actually the baseball coach, the head mm -hmm. baseball coach for two years. Yep. And, um, we had a, um, a player on the team with, I'm not sure what the disability was, 
Um, it wasn't Downs, but he was special ed. You know, right. he was in, in it was special clear. ed classes. Like, yep. He was he was on the team um, in, in a special ed capacity. Right. You know, and we would let him take batting practice at, at uh, um, practice and let him hit a home run and he'd hit a home run. And, you know, right. Um, but what I found in all these years of, uh, you know, and I'm not thrilled about this word mainstreaming, you know, right. Because I think every kid should be in mainstream. I don't think it should, I don't think the word should exist. Right. Know? Like it's just class. I get your reason. The, kids, get- the kids in the class. What do you mean? He's a kid in a classroom. We don't need to put a label on it. Right. But, um, but what I have found is that, yes, the kid with the special, you know, um, ability or whatever uh, yeah. difference, um, they're, they're obviously benefiting from the situation. Okay. Right. But it's, it's all the other kids. Right. It's, uh, when, when I taught kindergarten with a down student, we had 32 kids in the class. Mm-hmm. It was the 31 other kids right. who benefited, in my opinion, even more than the downs kid. Right. Did, because for the rest of their lives, these they kids knew. were 100% comfortable around Down syndrome people. Yep. You know, and it's the same with autism. It's the same with anything, anybody with any differences. Yes, of course, it's great for the athlete to be out right. there. Um, but it, it's just as good for everybody else. Right. You know, for, for everybody yeah. else to see that you can play beach volleyball with autism or right. you could do all these things, you know. Um, and, you know, if you got to cut them some slack and let them hit a home run at practice every once in a while or something like that, you get to see the joy on their faces, right. you know? Um, and uh, so that's what I thought was the, the, the biggest benefit was to the team as a whole, right. to the classroom as a whole, um, in addition to whatever it was doing for that special right. individual. Yeah. Was, was the whole team benefited from it. Right. And I think that's interesting that, that you mentioned that too, because I don't think a lot of people realize, and I'd even happily admit, I myself don't realize this or not, more oftentimes than not, in situations that involve dealing with these challenges, it's not necessarily the people who deal, actually deal with them that, you know, benefit in any way from these kinds of things. It's often always the other people who benefit yes. because Absolutely. they often learn more than the person who deals with it does because the person who deals with it learns to live with it and all. And to them, it seems like nothing, but to the average person who doesn't deal with these things, they learn so much right? because they don't deal with this. You know, they learn so much about it just because this is not something they have to experience with it. And I think that's the important key here to uh, let everybody know here. And I guess building off of that a little, you know, for you, obviously, both as somebody with ADD and also uh, dealing with all these other athletes who both have ADD and all these other things, in your interactions with them, what adjustments did you make per se? And like, what did you learn from them too that maybe you didn't learn from another player or, you know, your average player or whatnot, you know, what, what, what was different? You know, I would say, um, uh, so uh, going back to my kindergarten classroom, Right. Is if somebody were to say, you know, what's your discipline policy? Mm-hmm. I'd say it's simple. I have 24 kids and I have 24 dis- different discipline policies. Yep. You know, it's like if one kid hits another kid, it's not set in stone what's going to happen there. Yeah. You know, it depends on who the kid is mm-hmm. and it depends on what the kid who got hit just did to the kid who hit him. You know, I mean, there's a million different moving parts and variables in there. Right. And um, I found it was the same with the kids with the differences was there were just so many moving parts 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for me to say, you know, I did anything differently because mm-hmm. I treat every kid, you know, right. I know teachers love to say I treat all kids the same. Not me. No, nope. I treat every kid different and right. every kid I coach, I treat different. Right. Um, my friend coaches. At, right. Okay. And I'm always asking him questions like, well, what if your kids do this? Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he's very openly. He'll say, depends on who it is. Right. If it's your all-American starter, right, the rules are different, just right. like in life, you know. Right. And they uh, they have an unofficial uh, motto there: um, fair but not equal. Okay, we treat everybody fairly, but we don't right. treat everybody equally. Right. Okay, a starter who breaks a rule is going to have a very different consequence than a bench sitter who right. breaks a rule. <laughs> right. You know. So so ultimately, you know, you're you're treating all the kids differently to begin with or at right. least I do. So when I do have kids with different abilities, right, just like everybody else, you yep. know, I don't go out of my way and say, okay, guys, so-and-so gets to start with five points, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. Um, I might do that for a kid who's hurt, you know, right. shows up to hurt to practice, you know? So there's a million moving parts and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't even pretend to treat every kid equally. You know, I treat right. them all fairly, but not right. equally. Right. Exactly. You know, And I think that's a lot of things people don't understand the difference in, you know, everybody deserves to be treated fairly. Everybody deserves to be treated with respect. There's no doubt about that. You know, it's the plain, simple truth. But at the same time, everybody's different. And that's the other true part in this. And so as a result, everybody's got to be treated differently. Right. You know, even if maybe to at least to other people, that doesn't seem as fair. Yeah. It doesn't seem fair to everybody else, but it's ultimately fair. Right. You know, as long as at the end of the day, the, everybody is receiving the same kind of like, it's so weird too, because, you know, this is the the kind of stuff that, because I'll, I'll, I'll actually spitball a little here. Another thing I watched recently, not super recently, but also recently was the movie Moneyball, which, which is about uh, how the Oakland A's in the early 2000s explicitly used the power of statistics, which meant they measured stats that, you know, weren't like numbers and all, but rather more, they were calculated numbers. Yeah. Like that went more deep into like, not necessarily how good they were overall, but how good were they in certain aspects of the game? Right. You know, like getting on base and stuff like that, you know, and, and how that could benefit the team to the highest degree total. And how, as a result of that, they ended up having the longest win streak in MLB history, yeah. you know? So and, you it's know, like, I mean, and remember what they did was they, they got rid of their prima donnas. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, there's a point like, you know, Yasiel Puig is a good example of that. Yasiel Puig, they were able to, uh, the Dodgers were able to put up with his nonsense mm-hmm. until he didn't hit 250 anymore. Right. <laughs> Once his batting average dipped below 250, they said he is no longer worth all this trouble. Right. You know, and they got rid of him. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a good example where he was treated differently than right. everybody else. He was allowed to be late to practice right. and, you know, miss buses and stuff like that. Right. Because but he was hitting two, because he, he was hitting 250. Right. But, you know, the second he dipped below that, they said he's no longer worth it. You know, right. so that's a good example of he was treated fairly, but not equally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I, I definitely think that's a, a good example of that. And I think, you know, you've been talking about what you've drawn away from, you know, your experience as a kindergarten teacher. And I guess I'd like to ask some more specific questions regarding that. But before I do that, I would like to give 
another shout out to one of our sponsors. Are you looking to boost your SAT score by at least 360 points? Whether your goal is the SAT, ACT, AP classes, or general test preparation, turn to Sam's Tutoring Company. Sam is a Caltech-educated tutor with over 17 years of experience teaching over 700 students of all ages. Whether you want to learn in person or remotely, Sam is ready to help you accomplish your academic goals. Call Sam's Tutoring Company. If you mention the promo code SPORTSPECTRUM, you'll receive 25% off the price of your first session. For this final section of the episode, I want to... Again, I mentioned it before and I'll mention again, I want to focus more specifically on your experience from your full-time job as a kindergarten teacher for the past 25 years. And so what's interesting for me, at least, is I was diagnosed, I, I was first diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum when I was in first grade. So right after mm. kindergarten. And so I would imagine as a result of that, you know, you've had those experiences of kids and also just parents who learn that their kids, you know, or themselves have now have this, like they go from not knowing about it at all to learning. And so, you know, and so as a result, they've had similar experiences to me in that regard. And I guess, you know, I'll ask um, more specifically about that later, but I'll ask a set of questions first that kind of go off topic, but at the same time are focused on the first one. And I always start off this segment of the epi of every episode with this question regarding, you know, the spectrum aspect of it all. And that's uh, about the term mental health. And basically the simplicity I'm asking, the simple question I'm asking here is when you hear that, what pops into your head? What does it mean to you? Well, what pops into my head now is uh, society's evolution on their, their views of mental health. Mm -hmm. um, I just watched uh, an amazing documentary um, about Britney Spears. Oh. And yeah, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's basically about how society was hammering this poor girl while right. she was in the midst of a, you know, basically a mental breakdown, you know, right. she, the, the industry had just tore her to pieces and the press and everybody mm -hmm. just kept piling on her. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think it should be standard viewing for everybody to see how society as a whole used to pounce on these people. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and same with, I mean, look back at Dennis Rodman's career. Right. You know, I mean, Ron Artest, these guys had mental health issues. Right. And society just wants to label them as crazy or uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know how many, I know Phil Jackson, I think was really kind to Rodman. Right. Um, uh, in a really good example of treating him not equally, but fair, you know, right. like, I don't exactly. know if you, I'm sure you saw the last dance. Oh, I loved it. You Best saw thing how, ever. Okay, you saw how Phil Jackson treated him? He yeah. let him go to Vegas. Right. Right? Like, that's what he, let, you know, that wasn't, um, you know, equal to everybody else. He didn't let everybody else go there, but it's what Dennis needed. Right. And it's what the team needed. And the team needed Dennis at his best, and that's what they did. So when you say mental health, I just think that, you know, society's really evolving. Yeah. Um, do you watch Saturday Night Live at all? I do. Okay, Pete Davidson. There you he go. is like the poster boy for yep. mental health nowadays. This yes. is a guy who was publicly breaking down, I think writing on Twitter, you know, he didn't want to be in this world anymore. Yep. And rather than society hammering this guy, I'm sure right. there's some Twitter trolls oh, out there, there saying, were. do it, do it, do it. But um, people surrounded him. You know, he did not get fired from Saturday Night Live. No, he didn't. You know, they, they worked with him and 
you see more and more guys um, leaving sports teams to take a, a mental health break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure it's happening in corporate America and stuff oh, like I'm that. Oh, I'm sure. So I really think society is really evolving when it comes to mental yeah. health. Right. Um, you know, I'm sure you've had crazy hair day at school at some point in your life. Yep. You know, some people are questioning, we, we should not be making light of the word crazy. Right. You know what I mean? Like crazy implies that somebody's got having mental health issues. Right. And, you know, crazy hair day is not that good a look. You know, right. we, you know, I agree with people who say maybe we could find another way of, you know, letting the right. kids do whatever they want with their hair without calling it crazy. You yeah. Know? Like it could be called colorful hair day. For yes. Example, you you know? know, something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when you, so when you say mental health, I just think of society's evolution. Yeah, no, I'm, and, and you're right about that part about how more are becoming more open with it, you know, and all, and those direct examples of it and that stuff and how, you know, it's like, there've been too many instances I feel where it's like, you know, people have had to deal with this stuff and, you know, nobody cares in public. Uh, because yeah, because they're a part of the mainstream media. Yeah. And it's interesting actually, because my next question relates to that, you know, you obviously mentioned how you don't like the word mainstreaming. You think it should be abolished. And I agree with you in that sense. But I guess I would ask to help give our, our audience some more context. Why don't you describe what mainstreaming means to you? And basically what, what are the exact disadvantages and, you know, what effects, are, what are the effects of it really, you know, and maybe who is it appropriate and not appropriate for, you know, because yeah, obviously I, it's like there, there are some people who embrace this and others who don't. So, yeah. So to me, mainstreaming is, basically taking kids with differences that have the option of being in their own smaller special ed classes Mm -hmm. um, and putting them into a mainstream classroom, you know, a Mm -hmm. normal quote unquote normal classroom. Right. Um, And, you know, about every other year I get offered the opportunity to mainstream a child. um, And I don't remember ever saying no. Right. Um, there have been times where the child was just not suited for the classroom. Right. They, uh, I had a kid uh, grab some pole or something and break a window once. And this is in kindergarten, you know, yep. and it scared the other kids and stuff like that. So sometimes, um, you know, the benefits uh, are outweighed by, you know, the negative aspects. Sometimes there's danger involved. Sometimes it's not good for the individual child. Right. Um, uh, one of the one of the problems is that it's more expensive mm-hmm. for the school district. Now that's not my problem as a teacher. I'm not the school district accountant, right? But I can tell you that's why a lot of kids are um, a lot of parents are um, dissuaded from uh, mainstreaming is because it's flat out more expensive to have an aide, a right. one-on-one aide following that child through a classroom, right. as opposed to being in a classroom with eight other kids and two teachers, or mm-hmm. you know, a teacher and an aide. Um, but like we've talked about before that, you know, the benefits are not only for the child, but for the whole class, the class right. as a whole. Um, and you know, I mean, if it works, it's a beautiful thing, right? You know, it's always worth trying, you know, right. to any parents out there, I would say always try to mainstream right. and do not listen to the school district, <laughs> right? The school, you get yourself an advocate, right? you know, who's going to advocate for your child and your child only. Because, right. you know, a lot of times if you listen to the school district, they're going to give you the most fiscally responsible thing for them. Right. And say, oh, we think your child belongs in this classroom here. Right. Um, 
you know, always, always try out mainstreaming. Right. Know? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, and I, and I, it wouldn't, sh- and it wouldn't shock me too, if I can draw a comparison to that myself, because at least for me, I remember when I was in my elementary school years, how in order to, because, especially because, you know, at the time we didn't know much about what it was doing to me or what effects it had on me and what effects it would have on me relating to other people too, like how they would treat me or stuff like that. I remember, you know, some of the things they would do is I'd like on some days I'd go to see the school psychologist, for example, or it's like, you know, play a game with her or somebody else there. Like, I think my school had an occupational therapist too, who was great, you know? So it was like, for me, I kind of draw a comparison to that. And the fact that, you know, since I had to deal with autism at such a young age, I got to do things um, that not everybody else did that kind of like, you know, uh, separated me from everybody else and, you know, brought a unique experience to me. And I guess uh, I'll kind of build off of that a little bit and ask you another question here. And especially going back to the aspect I mentioned earlier about how I think a lot of kids share that experience of being diagnosed with these things at a very young age, especially around kindergarten and first grade and stuff. And, you know, ask as compared to those athletes that you mentioned, like, you know, that kid in baseball um, who were in high school, who had to deal with these issues. And as a result, had different behaviors and stuff like that, that you noticed, what did you come across these? What did you come across when you were dealing with these kindergartners? And what did you believe exactly given their age and what, where they were at in their life as compared to those high school kids and other athletes, what were they dealing with? Well, here's the thing about kindergarten is all the kids are ADD in kindergarten. Right. <laughs> you know, like, that's the great thing about kindergarten is that, you know, a lot of times I say to the parents, I go, yeah, your kid has a really short attention span. Right. But luckily every five-year-old right. does, you right. know, he's, especially the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I, I remember one child I had in my class, he needed a full-time shadow, okay? Okay. But he was very high-functioning, okay? Mm-hmm. So what we were able to work out was his shadow, um, as far as the rest of the kids were concerned, he was just the classroom aide, and right. nobody knew that he was there for that one specific kid. Right. He, he helped everybody in the class. Right. Now, right. he always had one eye on the mm-hmm. kid he was supposed to be shadowing, Right. But we went an entire year without any any of the kids knowing that he was there for that certain kid. Right. Now talk about an ideal situation. That mm-hmm. was a win-win for everybody. Yep. The kid didn't feel ostracized because he had a shadow following him. Right. Um, and uh, all the other kids benefited by being with the kid, but they also benefited by having another adult in the room that they could right. ask questions of and and stuff and get some help from him for with uh, with their work and stuff. So. Right. That was an ideal situation, but, um, but the kindergartners specifically, you know, short of having a Downs student, mm-hmm. um, the autistic students that I've had um, really didn't stand out that much. Right. You know what because I mean? That's... Like, because a lot of kindergartners don't necessarily make eye contact with everybody and right. have speech impediments and, you know, have all their other different issues. Right. The autistic kids that I've had, um, like I said, didn't stand out that much because there's lots of kids in kindergarten who don't read in kindergarten. You know, not that no autistic kids don't read, but if the kid was behind everybody else, nobody thought, oh, he must be behind because he's autistic. They just thought, oh, it's kindergarten. He can't read yet. What's the big deal, you know? Um, 
but you know, certainly by high school, it becomes a lot more visible. Right. Of course. You know, with the social aspects and any physical disabilities or anything. But that's that's one of the things I love about kindergarten. Right. Is that um, everybody's got their issues in kindergarten. Right. right. Yep. No. And I guess I'll I'll quickly add on to that. I know you asked this the same question in regards to the the high school kids you had to interact with who dealt with these challenges, but you know, in your interactions with these kindergartners, you know, who had to deal with these kinds of things, you know, what were your changes and, and if, did you make any of them and how you interacted with them? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like I was saying before with, with, um, you know, all the moving parts. Right. Um, I accommodate everybody in my classroom. Right. You know, if a kid can't hold a pencil, I Mm -hmm. have to, you know, uh, write the words in highlighter and then they trace it, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I'm making accommodations for almost every kid in the class. Right. At some point, you know, whether it's social or behavioral or something like that. So it's not that big a deal for me to accommodate uh, an autistic kid with whatever issues he he or she has or Down's kid or anything like that. It's uh, again, I'm treating them like everybody else and just doing whatever accommodations they need. Yep. Um, And sometimes it's, you know, I don't expect every kid to finish every assignment. You know, I know where the kids are. Yep. And if a kid can only finish half the assignment or only write the first letter of a word, and right. not spell the whole word, that's fantastic. Yep. But I'm constantly differentiating the curriculum throughout the day for my 24 kids. And so when I get a kid in there with special needs, it's just, right. a, it's just another accommodation. Mm-hmm. It's not that big a deal. And it's the yep. same thing with the high school kids. You right. know, it's just a different accommodation. You know, like I said before, some kids need to be yelled at. <laughs> Some kids need to be coddled, you know, right. you're accommodating to every kid out there. Right. You know, so it's not, it shouldn't that be, it shouldn't be that big of an adjustment when you get one more with another accommodation. Right. Yeah, no. And I guess that's the big advantage here Yeah. for people like you. And I, I guess I'll, I'll wrap this up now and ask the question. I always uh, uh, ask everybody to end each uh, episode I do which is that, you know, it's like we both mentioned before, a lot of progress has been made, will continue to be made regarding dealing with these issues, dealing with these challenges, all that stuff, you know, we know that. And we know people have gotten a lot better with dealing with this stuff over the course of time as well. And again, it will continue to get better with, you know, talking about it and learning to live with it and all that stuff. And yeah, but of course, this has existed since since the beginning of time and it will continue to exist until the end of time. There's always that stigma of people and, you know, just idea in general that, you know, this shouldn't be accepted. There's something wrong with this. You know, you get the idea and, and I'll, and, I, and I'll ask the, the big question here that I ask everybody to, to give their answer to, which is if you had to give advice or something to think about for, you know, the people listening here, any one or a couple of things, you know, regarding this about how maybe to ignore the stim- stigma or learn to, you know, deal with these issues more, what would that be? Okay. I would say, uh, I would say lean into it. Okay. okay. So like, like we've discussed, I, I have ADD, you know right. what I did? I didn't fight it. I right. leaned into it and right. I found sports and a career that where it became an advantage. Right. Okay. Like that Dempsey kicker. Okay. Mm-hmm. They leaned into it. They said, right. you've got a club foot, right? Let's find something that you can do and not just do, but excel at, you know? Right. So a lot of times, um, you know, when, when kindergartners are getting, you know, going through the battery of tests or something 
and the parents are, you know, biting their fingernails, hoping that their, their child isn't quote unquote labeled with something. I say, right. no, no, no. We want him to be labeled. We right. want her to be labeled because you're getting special attention. Right. You know, the, the, a lot of the stigmas are gone. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in a public elementary school where I teach, you know, I, we have 125 kindergartners mm -hmm. who are basically randomly placed into first grade classrooms. Okay. Right. Not a whole lot of thought given to their placement unless right. they have a label. If right. your child is labeled with ADD or autism or, you know, whatever, anything, um, right. people start giving special I, uh, concern for their placement and it, mm -hmm. it becomes an advantage, you know? Right. So, you know, so I would say, you know, continue to look for um, different opportunities, you mm -hmm. know, look at your child and figure out, you know, if they do have some differences, right. Um, how can you lean into it? How right. can you turn that difference into an advantage? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, no. um, I think I just saw something on 60 Minutes where um, autistic people are, are doing great in the workplace in, in number crunching. Right. And, there, you know, I, I think it was a whole piece on the different career paths that, that, that some rather low functioning autistic people are really excelling at. Right. You know, um, so, you know, if you if you're, it does have some some differences lean into it and, and figure right. out a way to make yeah. it an advantage right um or at least like i did with teaching is something that really plays to it yeah know? no yeah and, and it's like a, there are plenty of other examples of that that i know of in my lifetime you know start with me it's like i found a way you know to both be a good student be a good athlete put all the things together and not be afraid, you know, of like messing up when I'm on the court or on the field right. or whatever it's like, or in the classroom, it's like, I'm simply not afraid to take on something just because it's like, if somebody asked me to do it and I trust them and all that stuff, I'll do it. You know, yeah. it's that simple. And then it's like, you know, you talk about the leaning aspect of finding something you really, you can be really good at. Like, I'm sure, you know, the ABC series, the good doctor where yes, they, yes. The, main, the protagonist of that, series is a guy who has autism yes. who happens to be a really good doctor yes. because of his autism and it's and it's like he possesses abilities that nobody else does because he has it so right. it's like i i think you know what you said about you know leaning into and stuff that can that can be super helpful in a lot of ways for all these people who don't necessarily maybe realize that having you know dealing with adad dealing with autism that's not necessarily a bad thing in a lot of ways. It can be a very, very good thing if you're willing to just take the time to find out what that is. Right, right. You know, it's everybody's different. Everybody's got their issues. Right. You know, nobody's perfect. Um, and, you know, it's just, uh, and like we talked about with mental health, it, there, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Right. Yeah. You know, like whatever, whatever your differences are or anything, you just lay them out there and you mm -hmm. say, this is me. You know, it's part of me. Yep. And it what's makes me, me. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I definitely think that's more true than anything else. And I guess I'll just say now, um, you know, Kurt, thank you so much for being here. I had a great time talking with you and I'm sure our audience loved listening to you. You know, you obviously provide a lot of insight. I love the phrase lean into it. I will definitely <laughs> take that with me into the future. And you I know, think that's it, Michelle Obama, by the way. Okay, well then, then credit to uh, the future president of the United States. You know, there you go. <laughs> you know, it's like that is a great phrase to follow. 
you know, and I'll just say, you know, please stay in touch with us. You know, we hope to have you again on the show real soon. You know, just keep doing what you do. What you do is amazing. You know, oh, thanks, keep, Keegan. Keep doing the keep teaching all these kindergartners the great um, ironies of life and being hyperactive at such a young age that we all were and love. And I'd also like to thank our subscribers and listeners for joining us today. If you're looking for more great content like today's interview, please go to our website, which is www.sportsonthespectrum.net. And then for all my younger viewers and stuff who are probably listening to this to listen to their very own teacher right now, uh, please remember to follow the three rules of life, which are stay safe, have fun, get dirty. From Sports on the Spectrum, I'm Keegan Plegner, and I will see you all on the next episode. And thank you for listening.